Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan Longhenry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples of Jesus, making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Peter ends his second letter by saying, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So he ends his letter by exhorting Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter had begun his letter in 2 Peter 1 and verse 2 by kind of modifying the standard greeting the people would use in letters by saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, which, no, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's not. That's an addition there. And so we have uh, this very interesting thing where Peter is consciously, very consciously, providing his final exhortation to Christians throughout his letter. In verses 13 through 15 of chapter 1, Peter says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able any time to recall these things. So he's expecting this message to endure. This is Peter's final message to Christians. It's going to endure. And it's framed with appeals and exhortations related to grace and knowledge of God in Christ. And really, this is a very important message throughout Peter's letter. But what is this word grace? Grace is a Greek hottest. It's a gift. It's defined in short as unmerited favor. It's giving what is not deserved. And so at first blush, this idea of growing in grace may seem odd. How can we grow in grace? Because grace is most often defined as what God has given us in Jesus, specifically that Jesus died on the cross for us. And, that, and that's certainly true in 1 John 4, 7-11, many of the passages. God has manifested his grace by giving of his Son on the cross. If that's the way we look at grace, though, it's going to seem strange to grow in it, because Jesus died on the cross, once, for all. And we already have the Bible, the message of God in Jesus. And so it'd be kind of strange to suggest that we could grow in grace if we've already obtained it in these ways. Maybe the difficulty is not in Peter's words, but in our understanding of it because of the way that we look at things. Because I'd like to suggest that there's a fundamental misunderstanding and weakening of grace that's taken place over the past 400 years in in Western Christianity, rooted in neo-historic moralism and a drive to reform that's defined uh, the past really, millennium, let alone the past 400 years, and also some of the emphases of Protestantism. So we just use a bunch of fancy terms, and we're going to go and look at what some of these mean and why we're going to talk about them the way that we are. Neo-historic moralism may seem strange and odd, but this is what it is. Stoicism is an ancient philosophy. If you remember in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, he reasons with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And in Stoicism, uh, really presupposed material existence subject to fate. That's what was really going on. And so, uh, encouraged development of virtue through reason and moral striving to become free of passions. And that way you can overcome the passions. And it was a very attractive philosophy in the ancient world. 
and it remained a very attractive philosophy throughout Christian history because you can very easily take those fundamental concepts of Stoicism about with reason and moral striving to try to obtain virtue to be free of the passions and make it seem Christian. Now we talk about Neo-Stoicism. That's a 16th century uh, development founded primarily by a guy named Justus Lipsius as an attempt to kind of bring Stoicism and Christianity together. Humans should not yield to passions, but to God. That God is in control of all things. And so Lipsius and those who followed him insisted on bringing order and reason to everything. And specifically through uh, the protocols of how the elite, the nobles of society, should live. And in the process, it transformed Western society. Moralism is to understand all things in terms of moral or immoral behavior, in Christian terms. It reduces the gospel to the goal of improving behavior. And to understand neo-Stoic moralism and how that's had an effect, well, have you ever wondered why we don't live like we li did in the medieval world, where there's a lot of daily violence and disgusting behaviors? The difference between the medieval world and us is not merely technology, although that's a part of it. Technology itself is not going to change people's behavior in terms of uh, customs. Uh, but, in fact, there's been the cultivation of what's called courtesy. Think about the word courtesy there. What's the first word there? It's the word court. The royal court. How you act there. The word civility, which comes from Latin uh, civilis, the city or state. And there's also politeness, that is policed. And both of those words come from the Greek word polis, the city. And it's all fueled by the moralism of neostoicism. And so, uh, you, you pair this with this uh, thousand years of... of continual movement of, toward reform uh, that's nowhere seen anywhere else in history or in, in any other place. We've taken it for granted. We're always seeing projects trying to make everybody better. There's a constant societal upheaval. You think about now uh, and the changes going on now. You think of the changes that were going on in the 60s, the changes that were going on in the 20s, the Victorian era and the changes they were bringing in, uh, the changes that were being agitated in the earlier part of the 19th century. There were changes actually in the 18th century. And you keep going back, you can see wave after wave after wave of trying to get people to act better. And they always think that their programs are going to help people act better. Now, for most of that time, the driver of reform was found actually in Christianity. And it's not been a bad thing. We agree that it's improved life. There's been a drive for personal piety in that uh, movement uh, toward reform, which is good. It's the end of official religious repression and, and persecution. Uh, it means equality under the law. It's involved the abolition of slavery. Uh, it involves natural and civil rights. Um, a very uh, perhaps disgusting example of, of, of the kind of changes that went on is that it used to be in medieval times, in early medieval times, that it was frowned upon to defecate in court hallways. But the fact it was just frowned upon doesn't mean that people weren't doing it. But by the time you start developing these codes of behavior, it becomes absolutely no, you do not defecate in hallways, which we would all agree is a good thing. And that's one example of many, where you used to have violence among all the nobles and all kinds of uh, term and nasty terms and things, and, and all of a sudden, now they're expected to be genteel. They're supposed to be uh, handling their aggression in other ways. Uh, armies that used to loot and pillage their own people as much as anybody else become disciplined fighting forces. And uh, 
we have all of these ideas of what it means to live in a society and in civilization, and we think that these are pillars of civilization, when really they've just been pillars of this moral order that's been created by neo-Stoic moralism. The customs that have become normalized in 400 years, that first showed up around the nobles, and then everybody who wanted to live like the nobles, uh, leading all the way down to almost all the people. And to this day, we still look with disdain and horror, yet bemused fascination, at the people at the far margins of society who do not conform to these customs, these polite rules of, rules of courtesy, and who live um, what we would consider primitive, uncivilized lives. There's, there's codes of honor there. There's quote-unquote civilization there. It's just not affected by this moral order. And interestingly... Even though it started in driven in Christianity, it still exists to this day, even among those who no longer profess belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the progressive movement, and even in its own way the conservative movement, are driven by a mindset of reform, trying to change to get to somewhere better. Now, what does this mean about Protestantism? Well, Christians who look at the Protestant world, they see grace only, and they see faith only, and eternal security in a lot of evangelicalism. And it's easy to caricature that to make Protestant Christianity to a do-nothing salvation, where grace is a cheap get-out-of-hell pass, an excuse to do whatever we want. Uh, it's a caricature. Very few people, if any, actually accept that, but that's kind of the uh, reductio ad absurdum of a lot of the things that are argued against what the scriptures teach about our uh, responsibility for God. And we can find examples that justify those caricatures, but they hinder us from really seeing what's going on in Protestantism. And the fact that Protestantism has been reduced to moralism time and time again over the past 500 years of its existence. Because the core message there has been, it's through our personal piety that we accomplish sanctification. And so, Protestantism took on a lot of neostoicism. And in that process, ironically de-emphasized grace and began to more strongly emphasize moralism, doing the right things. And this is what leads to Max Weber's famous thesis about the Protestant work ethic, that Protestants were driven to work hard to obtain material wealth to demonstrate their presence among God's elect. Okay, interesting history lesson, right? Why should we care? What does that have to do with us in our faith? Well, Neostoic Protestant moralism is part of Western civilization, and it has driven how we understand ourselves, God, and our condition. Because after all, why do Christians believe they must work really hard to demonstrate their salvation, and that if things go wrong in their lives, it must be because they haven't displayed enough faith, or they haven't worked hard enough? Why is it that the poor and the oppressed continue to be marginalized, even with uh, in Christian discourse and among Christians? And they're often caricatures as lazy, gluttonous, and unworthy of support. Why do some Christians find it hard to believe they could be forgiven? While at the same time, other Christians give themselves a pass while indicting everything else that everybody else is doing is wrong somehow. And why does it seem like so much of what passes for exhortation in Christ really is just follow the rules or else? Let me be very clear about something. This is not the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. It resembles certain aspects of what God has revealed in Jesus, but it is not the gospel God has revealed in Jesus. It's coming out of this neo-Stoic moralism of our culture. 
Because when you look here in 2 Peter, in verse 3 of chapter 1, right after he said that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the excellence of Him. Excuse me, the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But God, through his power, has granted to us. What is If you grant something, you are giving it. It is a manifestation of grace. What was given? All things that pertain to life and godliness. In verse 4, God has granted to us, again, given us precious and great promises. Through those great and precious promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature. Another manifestation of grace. And he continues in verses 4 through 7, 5 through 7, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge of self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, how can we do that? That sounds like doing work, right? It involves effort, but it comes for this very reason. What's that reason? That we have been granted the things pertaining to life and godliness through God. It all comes as a gift from God. Manifestations of grace that allows us to do that work. In verses 16 through 21, Christians have the assurance of their faith in the message of truth that is embodied in Jesus and confirmed by the apostles, prophesied by the prophets. These are all given by God, and therefore they are manifestations of grace. In 2 Peter 3, 9, God does not want anybody to perish, but he wants all to be saved. He wants to show grace and mercy. And Christians are to consider the long-suffering of God as salvation, a manifestation of mercy in 2 Peter 3, 15. God gave Paul wisdom, and he wrote, God gave it to Paul, it's a gift. It is a manifestation of grace in verse 15 as well. And so we can see a contrast between grace and Neostoic moralism. Neostoic moralism is all about the rules and following the right patterns of behavior. Grace in Christ is about restoring the relationship so that we may be able to have right thinking and conduct empowered in God. Neostoic moralism is vaunting itself. Hey, we're following the rules. We've got it right, and therefore leads to a judgment and indictment of all who are not following the rules. In Christ, we are reminded that we've never been good at following all the rules. We're not going to be justified by following the rules in Romans 3.20. And therefore, our ground of confidence is not in ourselves, but what God has done to restore us to himself through Jesus, Romans 3.23, and following, especially chapter 5, 6 through 11. And... Neostoic moralism perpetuates the myth that if you work hard and do the right thing, you will have no suffering or little suffering and you'll gain wealth. God's grace confronts us with the cross of Christ and the recognition that faithfulness can only 
happen through suffering. That material wealth is not the goal. The church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14-21 had material wealth. And Jesus said they were naked and poor and blind and pitiable. And they, he counseled them to buy from him gold refined by fire. They're going to have to get the things they needed, but they're going to have to go through suffering to get it. Neostoic moralism is pitiless to those who violate or flaunt the rules, and it provides satisfaction for those who try to do it. God's grace is a reminder that we have all broken the rules, and we're not better than any other. Neostoic moralism has become the handmaiden of individualism. It leads to the cult of the self and the self-sufficiency of each person, because I have built this with my own hands, and I have the rights to it. But God's grace reminds us we are utterly dependent upon God and by ourselves and our own efforts only have fallen into sin. We can see the effect of that in Ephesians 1 and 2. So growing in grace seems odd to us, but in Scripture it's very natural because we can always grow further in the gift that God has given us that can strengthen us and empower us and provide the ground for our standing before Him. So that's what's going on with grace there. Now what about knowledge? Knowledge, gnosis or epignosis in 2 Peter 3.18, is normally reduced to a set of facts. But in 2 Peter, it means so much more. And again, in this way, we're being led astray by Greek philosophy itself. Because what's happened is, is that Christianity became a set of ideas or principles where the faith can be reduced to these facts about who God is in Jesus. So to know Christ is, oh yeah, I've read the Bible, I know facts about him. That's a part of it. But it's not the whole of God's intentions or the idea of knowledge. So we see, again, going through the very same passage we just did, notice where knowledge comes in. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the grace and peace can be only found in the knowledge of God. We talked about how the divine power, God's grace, has granted us... uh, uh, the things pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So how do we come to, how do we obtain these things? We've got to understand something. We've got to know God to get these things. And it's by means of that knowledge that he has granted us precious and very great promises. In verse 3 and 4. In verse 5 and 6, uh, notice this this interesting thing he says here. Uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So there's faith, then virtue, then knowledge. And knowledge then goes on to lead to self-control. This is not the same knowledge of Second Peter 1, uh, 2, and 3. Because this is applied knowledge, perhaps even connoting wisdom, that you only can obtain with faith and virtue. Now, Peter has made known the testimony of Jesus to Christians in 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Christians can know that prophecy is not made by man's will. The scriptures and the records of the apostles are a source of knowledge. Peter warns the Christians about false teachers. And he does so in chapter 2 uh, by using examples from Israel, false prophets. And the knowledge we can gain from what God has made known can make us wise to discern these things. Uh, that would be contrary to these things he's made known in Jesus. And in 2 Peter 2.20, Christians escape the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
in 2 Peter 3, 1-13. How does Peter frame this conversation and exhortation about the return of Jesus? Well, he wants to stir up the minds of Christians by way of reminder that they would remember uh, what the uh, commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles was. That's, that's something that they would have known. And how the people who scoff at the Lord's return have forgotten, i.e. they have no longer kept in knowledge what God made known about the world in the days of Noah and his destruction. Christians are not to forget that to God a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, from Psalm 90, verse 4. Peter encouraged the study of what Paul had written, warning of how things that were difficult to understand, that the unstable ignorant would twist to their own destruction. Uh, Christians must not be carried away by the heirs of the wicked to fall from their steadfastness. In 2 Peter 3.15-17. And this, then, is why Peter says Christians are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because grace is the recognition of all God has done and given to us in Jesus. That grace enables and empowers us to understand what God has done to follow after Jesus in the cultivation of godliness. Knowledge certainly involves the facts of the gospel that are rooted in what God has made known through the prophets and apostles in Scripture, but it demands its proper application in light of the distortions you find in the world. So how can we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Peter assists us in understanding how we might live by grace. Our lives and our abilities are gifts of God. We grow in grace when we acknowledge our dependence on God and ask Him to uh, give us gifts that would allow us to serve and to equip us to use those gifts in 2 Peter 1 and verse 2. We've allowed a terrible contrast to enter people's minds. Uh, we've made it so that people make a contrast between faith and obedience, or obedience and grace. Obedience and grace are not opposites. The opposite of grace is moralism. Because Paul and Peter are both clear that grace empowers obedience. Because it's grace that has been given to us that we may stand to partake of the divine nature and to participate in God's work. All of which, which absolutely demands our active conscious participation, but that participation is not on our own, by our lonesome. It is within the Father, through the Son, by means of the Spirit. So in Romans 6, when Paul says we are no longer under law, but under grace, what is it? How are we not under law, but under grace? That uh, we have become conformed to the standard teaching to which we've been committed. That we have become obedient to the gospel. That's how we live under grace. That is not a contradiction. Grace and obedience are not held in contrast. Grace and moralism are in contrast. Because if our obedience is motivated by a desire to follow the rules for the sake of following the rules, and moral striving dependent upon our feeble efforts, we're going to be moralistic, and we're going to inevitably become Pharisees. Because that's what the Pharisees did. If our obedience is grounded in God's grace, though, we recognize we're not gaining our standing because of what we're doing. But we're trusting that what God has done in Jesus has allowed for our standing, and we submit to him that we may be empowered to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And from Galatians 5, 22-24. And we see this in Ephesians 3, 2 Peter 1, other passages. So grace is not just about what God has already provided in Jesus and the Word, although that's certainly a large part of it. It flows also from what Jesus and the Word have made known. We have sinned. We cannot stand based on our own merit. We cannot earn our standing. We are dependent upon God in Christ for cleansing and strength so God can work through us to accomplish His purposes. That's the core of Ephesians 2, 1-10. 
that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God that we've been prepared to, to walk in the works that God has made for us. Grace is relational by definition. It's a gift given. And it demands for us to be relational as well. Our standing is not based on our performance, but on our trust in Jesus. And so when we are freed from considering ourselves in terms of our performance, we can admit our inadequacies and insufficiencies and humility. Because it's no longer about our performance, not longer about how well we're doing, so we can see our faults and failings. And we can cease judging others so strongly for not living up to the ideal, because they're sinful. And they have inadequacies and insufficiencies. And in this way, not only are we able to receive the love, grace, and peace that God would give us, but then we can display that grace, love, and peace to others as well. Which is a core idea in Romans 2 and 3, 5 and 8. So in short, to grow in grace is to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is only really possible when we submit to God in trust in Jesus to allow Him to work through His Spirit in us, in the relational unity we're supposed to have with God and with our fellow Christians. Now, what about growing in knowledge? When Christians think about growing in knowledge, a lot of times it invariably goes to Bible study. I need to know more about the information presented in Scripture. And don't be deceived and do not be confused. That kind of knowledge is important. We need to know the basic information which is provided in Scripture. That's why Peter himself exhorted everybody to read Paul's letters. And to gain from them. But in Peter's letter, he presupposes that kind of knowledge. As he said, he's just stirring up people's minds by way of reminder. He's not expecting anything in here to be new to the people who are reading it or hearing it. He expected them throughout his letter to know the basic story of Jesus and many of the events in what we call the Old Testament. He spoke by way of reminder of what the prophets and apostles said. So, Peter and Paul and Jesus, expect Christians to grow in far more profound knowledge. Not mere facts, but applied knowledge. The knowledge of the heart. I want to consider deeply some of the prayers that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 1 and 4. In Ephesians 1, Paul lists out all the uh, blessings God has given us in Jesus, in, the, in, in every spiritual blessing in the spirit, in the heavenlies. And he says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he had worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In chapter 3, after listing out how we've been saved and all reconciled in one body in Jesus, Paul has established the mystery of the gospel. The Gentiles are full members of the covenant community. He then, in verse 14, bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, 
to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now I ask in these prayers, is Paul really think that the Ephesians don't have any mental acknowledgement of the fact God loves them and that, that it, God loves them a lot? No. He expects them to know that. He's already talked about it. Notice his emphasis that there might be this insight given in your heart, to have the eye of your heart enlightened, that the strength is given to comprehend these things. Thus, it is not merely about some kind of intellectual acknowledgement. It is a more, much more profound, deep in the heart and, and, and soul and faith uh, involving the experiential to continually recognize. And if you have any time in Christ, the, the more that you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that knowledge of Jesus is not just, oh, here are facts about him, but becoming much more familiar with who he is based on what he has done because you you're seeing that in the fruit in your life and it seems so bizarre how can any of us understand the depth or height the breadth of god's love for us in jesus well we can't but in our lives as we grow we we, we become more and more awed and mag at, at how great that love is and we 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 may plumb it further in 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 some various ways and more deeply appreciative and more humbled by it, more empowered to live for him. And that's what's going on there. This isn't something that's merely intellectual. And you go back in Second Peter 1, 3-4. What comes through the knowledge of what God has done in Christ? Everything related to life and godliness, to partake of the divine nature. Just knowing facts cannot get you there. So, Mentally capturing the facts about what God has done with Christ is important, but to really know God in Christ requires trust and development. We call that faith and sanctification. So as grace is relational, that's the way knowledge is too. We learn of God so as to strengthen our relationship with him. And that's very important that we become more one with him. Uh, so many times we try to get knowledge to gain power. Uh, where if I gain uh, knowledge of something, I can gain mastery over it. Uh, we try to learn more about God to, in some sense, gain mastery over Him, that we may understand Him better for our own selfish purposes. Whereas the proper perspective of all theological inquiry is to learn more about Him so as to praise Him more profoundly and deeply. To be more awed by our own humiliation and His majesty and glory. And to uh, really fall on the knees before Him in greater in greater uh, reverence because of how amazing he is. We understand this very well as somebody we love deeply. Uh, the beloved. It is not enough just to learn the facts about the beloved. Oh, that person is all these things. That's great. No, we want to know them. And how do we want to know that person? We want to know them because we want to share in life with them. We want to serve them. We want to enjoy them. And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul and Peter are insisting that we have toward God. So God wants us to take the same kind of delight in him that we would partake in the beloved, to want to know him, to share in life with him, to serve his purposes, enjoy him, and all of that can only be done when we more fully ascertain the great love with which he has loved us in Jesus. And that's where that all comes together. And that's why there is no end 
to growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's always more ways to receive and manifest God's gift. We can always plunge deeper in that knowledge of the Lord and the profound depths of love, grace, and mercy that we found in Him and never exhaust. But we can only truly grow in that grace and knowledge and faith when we have abandoned all hope of obtaining our standing before God based on our performance or making Christianity a set of disembodied rules and principles that are much more important to us than anything else, sharply judging those who don't follow the rules the way we think they should be followed, and say we need to submit to God's purposes humbly, to trust in Christ, to acknowledge always our limitations, our failures, and dependence on God for all that is good, as we can see in Ephesians 2, 1-10. through 10. We can choose grace and faith, or we can choose self-righteousness and moralism. We cannot choose both. So absolutely, we must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is not some cheap pass. Grace is a gift of God. But Christians must avoid neostoic moralism and instead put their trust truly in God and Christ, for they cannot gain standing through their performance. Knowledge is not just about acquiring facts. Christians must plunge deeper in their knowledge of God and Christ through study, yes, but devotion and service to grow in relational unity to better apprehend the depth of the love of God and Christ and the power he displays in his people. And therefore, may we all grow indeed in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to obtain the resurrection of life. And we're so glad that you've joined us. If you've benefited by uh, our discussion here today, we please encourage you to share it with your friends, families, and other online. If you have any questions for us or you'd like to learn more about these things, you'd have a, like to have a Bible study or take a Bible correspondence course, you'd like to check us out, please find us online at VenturesToChrist.org. We're also on social media. And if I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.